It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I want to welcome everybody to the Knights Mountain Report. I'm excited. I got another Western Pennsylvania guy on, but before we begin, remember the views and opinions of this show are those of the host and guests, and please don't take it out on any anyone else, please. Thank you. My, and before I forget, don't forget, later, towards the end of the show, right towards the end of the show, I'm going to read another fun iTunes review. I think I'm going to pick one of my people that didn't like me. I like those. I'm hoping more people leave good ones, but yeah, the bad ones are just as fun for me because I enjoy them. So, my guest tonight is Charles Reichenbaum, or Dr. Knowledge. We're, I think we're just going to stick with Dr. Knowledge. How's that sound? How are you doing tonight? How are you doing? Okay. Good being did, with you, Jim. Where did that, where did that come from? Dr. Knowledge. Uh, I was doing a bunch of, I still do a bunch of radio talk shows around the country, and there were two different hosts that gave me that name. My original book series was called Knowledge in a Nutshell, and I had a uh, talk show host in Kansas City, uh, started calling me Dr. Knowledge because of the titles of the books that were Knowledge in a Nutshell, and then the same thing happened with a talk show host in Houston. Uh, he came up with the name Dr. Knowledge, so I figured, well, that's pretty good. So I've been using that ever since. Uh, and actually, our new book uh, is it doesn't have the words knowledge in the nutshell, and it. it's called The All-Time Book of Fascinating Facts. But for people to see it, they, our website is knowledgeinthenutshell.com, and uh, the name of our new book is The All-Time Book of Fascinating Facts. But that Dr. Knowledge really just came from those two radio talk show hosts who Came up with a good name. <laughs> I was to say that's about that's just about right for what I've based off seeing what you do. So, um, next thing, this isn't uh, wasn't part of my original prep for the interview, but as you know, things change in the world. Um, you a little scared about going downtown at all with the uh, the bus falling in the sinkhole? Uh, with the bucks falling? Maybe <laughs> no, maybe. No, they really, and they really cleaned house. They fired the manager, the general manager, the bench coach, the pitching coach. Uh, they even fired me, I hear, but I haven't got the letter yet in the mail. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, they so. really, uh, really did clean house after the season. <laughs> Somebody had. It was about time. I'll leave it there. Okay, enough of that kind of. Inside joke kind of stuff for anybody who doesn't live in Pittsburgh because I'm pretty sure there isn't Pirates fans too far around anymore. But anyways, uh, the the first thing that fascinated me, you sent me a list of things, and the one that caught my eye was three three one man's been around three uh, United States presidents that were assassinated. And yeah, I started doing. Would... I started looking at that, and I went, "Well, I've got to hear it because I, you know, as I was trying to juggle the timeline in my mind." So go ahead, tell me a little bit more about that. It's just incredible that one man was on the scene when three different U.S. presidents were assassinated. It's just incredible. <laughs> and that one man was pretty well known himself. It was Robert Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, who obviously was with Abraham Lincoln after Lincoln was shot and killed in 1865. And then Robert Lincoln got into politics himself after his father's assassination and by 1881, 16 years later, he was in the cabinet of President James Garfield. And Garfield was leaving on a train trip from the uh, Washington Railroad Station. The cabinet went down to say goodbye to him because they had some unfinished business. And a guy comes up uh, to Garfield, uh, a, a man described as a disappointed office seeker. Uh, he was a, a, a guy that thought Garfield had promised him a job and he didn't get the job. In any case... Uh, point blank, he they didn't have Secret Service like we do today. They didn't have security around Garfield. This guy came up and point blank shot and killed President Garfield. And Robert Lincoln was standing about two feet away from Garfield when Garfield was shot. So that was in 1881. And then, incredibly, 20 years, exactly 20 years after that in 1901, by that time, Robert Lincoln had left politics. He went into business and became head of the Pullman Company, which was a big deal in those days. And because he was head of the Pullman Company, he was elected president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There was a business exposition in Buffalo 
and President William McKinley invited Robert Lincoln to come to the exhibition, to the business exposition, since he was head of the Pullman Company and head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And just as Robert Lincoln walked in the exhibition hall where this uh, exhibition was, there was a receiving line uh, with President McKinley there, and a man got into the receiving line with a revolver hidden. He had his hand bandaged, and of course they didn't have metal detectors in those days, and this guy was able to get in the line with the gun hidden under his bandaged hand, and he was described as an anarchist who wanted to kill a president. Anyhow, he comes up to McKinley and shot and assassinated President McKinley, and there was Robert Lincoln again standing just a few feet away from a president when a president was shot. So after that, Robert Lincoln vowed that he would never get near a president again, and as we say in our book, the all-time book of fascinating facts, probably nobody would have invited him anyhow. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking, even if he would have said that, I'd probably be like, no, you just stay away. Yeah, and and, and, and Jim, he lived another 25 years. He, he died in 1926, and he built a beautiful home in Vermont, in Manchester, Vermont, which is a big shopping area uh, in that town of Manchester, Vermont. And his home, which is really a beautiful mansion, is still there. It's it's open to the public. Uh, people can see where he lived. And as I say, he, he, he lived there till 1926, never went to Washington the rest of his life, and of course never got anywhere near a president. But it's just a, amazing that, you know, one person would be on the scene when three different presidents were assassinated. It's just, just an amazing fact. And we uh, have that in our, in our book, uh, the all-time book of fascinating facts. Now, I, I might be confused about this, so don't, don't slap me too hard if I am, because it's early in the show. Didn't he save um, jo, uh, John Wilkes' brother from falling? Well, from that's, that a, that, that's a great story. Uh, uh, when his father was president, uh, Robert Lincoln was going to Harvard, and he was coming home on a school vacation from uh, Harvard, uh, from Boston, back to Washington to be with the family. And he had a, of course, most people travel by trains in those days. There were no airplanes or automobiles. This is uh, in the early 1860s. So anyhow, he's taken a train from Boston to Washington, but he had to change trains in Newark, New Jersey. And he's standing on a railroad platform in Newark waiting for his uh, next train to come. And the platform was real crowded, and he was standing near the edge of the platform, and he either fell or got pushed accidentally off the platform onto the tracks just as a train was coming and there was a man standing right there who saw that and uh, this man reached down and pulled Robert Lincoln up off the tracks just before the train came probably saved his life because there's a question whether he could have gotten up off the tracks by himself a question whether the train would have seen him whether the train would have stopped in time anyhow this guy in effect, saved Robert Lincoln's life as he pulled Robert Lincoln up off the tracks and back onto the platform. The man who did that was a famous Shakespearean actor of the day. His name was Edwin Booth. And it would be Edwin Booth's brother, who was a black sheep of the family, John Wilkes Booth, who would be the man in a few years uh, who would be the one who assassinated Robert Lincoln's father, Abraham Lincoln. And we know that story is true. Uh, we, we did a lot of research on that. And there's a letter that Robert Lincoln wrote to Edwin Booth uh, sometime after that, thanking him, basically thanking him for saving his life. And Edwin Booth was so thrilled to get that letter, so grateful to get that letter, since he was so upset that his brother had been the one who assassinated Lincoln, that he kept that letter. And that letter is in the Smithsonian Institution today, which you know, proves the point that it was Edwin Booth, John Wilkes Booth's brother, who, in effect, saved Robert Lincoln's life or, you know, at least saved him from very serious injury or, or a fatal injury. So it's just a an amazing coincidence that it would be Edwin Booth who saved Robert Lincoln and then Edwin's Booth's brother, later the one to assassinate Robert's father. Let's pause there and think about how much it took to send that letter. Because there are people yeah. that I, I'm mad at that I wouldn't send the letter to the, well, I guess there is a letter, but, well, 
long walk off oh, the pier kind of deal. He, <laughs> yeah, he was grateful, though, to Edwin Booth, you know, as upset as he was. Edwin Booth's brother, that John Wilkes Booth, was a, a real black sheep of the family. The Booth family was very famous. In fact, Edwin Booth is in the, uh, the Hall of Fame for Great Americans because he was one of the leading actors uh, of, of the day. And uh, that family was very well thought of, all except for John Wilkes Booth, who, as I say, was like the black sheep of the family and never quite made it as an actor. Oddly enough, uh, he acted in a play at Ford's Theater in Washington uh, a few months before he went back there, and that's where he shot Abraham Lincoln uh, in, in Ford's Theater. Yeah, um... John Wilkes Booth had, uh, well, we're both from Western Pennsylvania. John Wilkes had some oil interests, but he was never, I mean, he was here for a brief period of time. I read some book. It was kind of weird. It was from, like, back in the day, like 1880s. So it was, like, you know, good reports about the stuff. But what it was not, hap- not happy to be here. And I can't, I mean. Yeah. Uh, but you got to try to, you know, gamble that money, I guess, unless you're going to gamble that money. Six one half the other. So, the other fa- okay. So there's the the thing, the connections between Lincoln and Kennedy. But hold on, just a second. The other fascinating thing about Lincoln to me is somebody act well. More than once, people tried to steal his body. Mm. Did you know that? No, I never heard that. No, no. To the point where they had to dig a deep hole and cover it with cement so nobody would try to, um, because he was in. You know, there's the little i don't know what the technical term is but i want to say like room inside the tomb mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're cutting trying to get uh, yeah look that up that's it's phenomenal to me that they were trying to kidnap a body for they were trying they're going to try to ransom them up trying to make money and that's something yeah well so, okay so let's get into these uh because i i've seen a list of these ties, and then I've seen another list that says, well, these ones aren't true. So where are we with this knowledge about the the Lincoln-Kennedy connections? Well, these are all true. There's no question. Uh, I'll, I'll go through the we, – we have a – this is one of the – we get a lot of nice comments on this from – it's in our book, uh, the all-time book, Fascinating Facts. This, this runs a couple pages. I'll just try to remember as many as I can. <laughs> Uh, of the similarities between the assassinations of Kennedy and Lincoln. Uh, let's start with the fact that they, and it's just incredible, it's eerie almost how many uh, connections there are, how many coincidences there are between the two assassinations. Both Kennedy and Lincoln were shot on a Friday. In both cases, they were sitting next to their wife when they were shot. Neither wife was hurt. Uh there are seven letters in Lincoln's name and Kennedy's name. Uh, Lincoln was elected president in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. They were both succeeded by men named Johnson. Lincoln was succeeded by Andrew Johnson, Kennedy by Lyndon Johnson. Um, let's see. Uh, Andrew Johnson was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. Both names, Andrew Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, have 13 letters in their names. The two assassins both had three-word names, John Wilkes Booth, who shot Lincoln, and Lee Harvey Oswald, who shot Kennedy. Exactly 15 letters in both those names, John Wilkes Booth, Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, Let's see. Uh, Oswald shot Kennedy from a warehouse and then hid in a theater, Booth shot Lincoln in a theater and then hid in a warehouse. Both Lincoln and Kennedy died in a place with the initials PH. After uh, Lincoln was shot, he was taken across the street uh, to a boarding house. It was called the Peterson House. Uh, And that's where he died the next morning. Uh, Kennedy was, after he was shot, was taken to a hospital in Dallas called Parkland Hospital, also with the initials PH. Uh, both, uh, let's see, uh, Lincoln had sons named Robert and Edward. Kennedy had brothers named Robert and Edward. Um, let's see. Uh, secretaries, Lincoln's secretary was named, this is great, this is true. Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln. And the final one, Jim, is the car in which Kennedy was riding when he was shot was... 
on Lincoln. Isn't that, that amazing? One, that one gets you, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bad news for Ford Motor Company, though, but, you know. <laughs> That's right. It's it's fun to see those similarities in things. It's weird. and I mean, because, you know, every once in a while... You get one thing that matches up, and you go, "Oh, that's kind of neat." But when you dig down, and you, I think you lost, I, I lost count after ten, ran out of fingers. So you know, sorry. Um, well, there are a lot. It's just yeah, like, and you said there are pages in your book, so that doesn't probably barely scratch the surface of it. So that is not co- coincidence, as uh, some people would like to point out. That there's something cosmic to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, my live listeners are into the. They're still going about Pluto, and I don't. I don't understand what do you, they want it to be a planet again, because I think everybody's just comfortable with Pluto being a planet. What do you have yeah, any? It's very close, you know, in size. It, of course, was the smallest planet, but it's still bigger than you know a lot of other bodies. Uh, it was considered a planet for many years. Uh, he was discovered in the 1930s, got its name. A little girl, by the way, came up with that name. Uh, a 13-year-old girl came up with that name, Pluto, uh, for, for the planet, which has now been degraded and not considered a planet anymore, although some still consider it to be. So I guess I, I, guess I want to ask them, if, they, if they, we bring it back, do we come back with a new name and what the new name is? Not for you, just for them, because I want them to keep churning on this deep and profound subject. Um, we also want to get into... Okay, so this is another kind of one of their topics. How far can you see on a clear day? Because I, I swear that you don't see as far as you think you do. <laughs> True, sure. Well, <laughs> if you ask most people the question, how far can you see with the naked eye on a clear day, most people probably would say maybe a mile, two miles to the horizon. But do you realize that you and I and we, as long as we have our sight with a, uh, on a clear day, we can see 93 million miles away, right? Because <laughs> all we have to do is look at the sun, and the sun is roughly 93 million miles away. And even more amazing, Jim, is at nighttime, you know, we can see stars uh, that are billions of miles away. With our naked eye, we can see something that is, you know, 10 billion miles away. It's just it's amazing when you think about it, but uh, certainly in, on a nice afternoon, you can easily, with those two eyes of yours, you can easily see 93 million miles away without a, no questions. That's a good question you can, uh, you know, ask ask your friends or kids or... Uh, well, I'm, it's on it now. I'm going to ask my son tomorrow. He loves the, the dad joke, so I've got it. That's, good. That's okay. a good answer. <laughs> So if I I'll take anything, you, give you if I take one. anything away from this show, that'll be it. Ugh. I'll give you a good one to, to ask a little kid. A question we have in the book: uh, Why was the number six afraid? Why is the number six afraid? And the answer is because seven, eight, nine. I heard another one the other day, but I can't remember what it is. Some, I ended up with the punchline being nine is the square root of three, but I don't remember the actual joke. <laughs> Yeah, or you so could say, what's the longest word in the English language? And the answer could be smiles, because there's a mile between the S, the two S's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We have yeah. a, a couple of those uh, little kids' <laughs> questions in, in our book. So. But see. on a more serious note, Yeah, I was going to say, now we've got to transition back to something more serious, I think. Yeah. Maybe I just should sit here and laugh for the next 40 minutes. Oh, probably can't. Um, there... Let's go back to Rose Kennedy, because that was kind of, I guess we kind of, as I was scrolling the notes here a little bit, um, 104 years old. First, hey, congratulations on living that long. But I can't imagine living through all that in the midst of trying to be, um, as a parent, I'd just be horrified, let alone the level of what they were doing. It's a heck of a story, Jim. Again, we have it in the all-time book of fascinating facts. What happened to that family? I mean, here's a family that really basically had everything. They had money, a lot of money. They had power. They had prestige. Uh, Rose's father was a mayor of Boston, a big political figure. Uh, Joseph Kennedy, uh, the father, was 
uh, her husband, who the father of President Kennedy, uh, was a very wealthy, successful businessman, uh, uh, politician. He was in did did work for President Roosevelt. And, uh, anyhow, the, as I say, the family had everything except the tragedies that that family went through. And here's Rose Kennedy, the mother who lived through all this and lived so long through all this. And let me just, again, I'll do this from memory. It's in, in our book. But um, let's start with the fact their first son, Joseph Jr., was killed in World War II. Their next child was a daughter who was killed in a plane crash uh, in the late 1940s. The next daughter had mental problems, had a failed lobotomy when she was about 12 years old, and spent the rest of her life in a mental institution. Their next child was Jack Kennedy, uh, who obviously became president but was assassinated at age 43. Uh, I'm sorry, at age 45, he was assassinated. The next child was Robert Kennedy, also assassinated. And then uh, you had the grandchildren. Uh, one, one grandchild of Rose Kennedy's was killed in a skiing accident. He, he ran into a tree and was killed. Another one died of drug overdose. Another one had uh, a leg removed by uh, from cancer. And here's Rose Kennedy living through all this, seeing all her children uh, being killed and, and, and dying at early ages in, in real tragedies. And she lived through all this, as I say, to 104. Uh, and the final one, uh, John Kennedy's son, John Kennedy Jr., was also killed in a plane crash. Some people may, may remember that. He was flying to Hyannisport with his uh, wife and sister-in-law, and their plane crashed uh, in the ocean there. And here's Rose Kennedy uh, just, you know, living through all these, uh, all her children being killed and grandchildren. And as I say, as you say, and as, as we say, it's true she lived to the age of 104. She was very religious, and that, you know, certainly helped her. She had uh, met two different popes, and uh, she had a weekly or daily, almost a daily visit from a priest uh, in her parish, and, uh, you know, that undoubtedly helped her get through all this. But just imagine living through all this, uh, seeing all your children and grandchildren uh, being killed in, you know, so prematurely. It's just, uh, you know, losing one child would be bad enough, but she lost so many. It is just amazing to ponder going through all that time and time and time and time again. Right. Um, so let's, 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 shift, let's shift gears for just a, a couple minutes here because this, this fascinates me because I have 11 books on my note sheet here. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, 11 of our books, yeah. Actually, this is number twelve, the new one. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I, I can't. I guess after two or three, I guess this kind of becomes just a, a compilation <laughs> number. It doesn't. I mean, it's impressive the amount of work. But what made you want to do number one? Well, it all started, uh, Jim. It, it leads to a very interesting fact. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I loved radio. Now, this is many years ago. I'm, I was a journalist for fifty some years, so this is. Long, long time ago, I was a kid, and I got a job. I, as I say, I love radio, and I went to a radio station in Pittsburgh and got a job as a, what we today would be called an intern. They didn't call it that in those days. Anyhow, my job was to uh, clear the news as it came across the newswire. We obviously didn't have computers in those days. We had teletypes, and you had to tear the sheets of paper off the teletype as the news came in. So anyhow, they had me working on, since I was the youngest one there, they had me working on July 4th on the holiday. And I was just, you know, looking at the news as it came over the teletypes. And uh, a feature story from the Associated Press came over that three of the first five U.S. presidents all died on July 4th. And I thought, boy, that's a amazing fact. I, I don't think I ever learned that in school. And I looked it up, and it certainly is true. Uh, three of the first five U.S. presidents all died on July 4th, all of unrelated causes. You know, what are the odds on that? The second president, John Adams, died on July 4th, 1826. He lived in Massachusetts. The same day, 
July 4, 1826, Thomas Jefferson, the third president, died in Virginia. And another significance there is that that was the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, uh, July 4, 1826, as opposed to July 4, 1776. And both Jefferson and Adams, who were so involved in the Declaration of Independence, died on that 50th anniversary of it. And then the fifth president, James Ma- James Monroe, also died on uh, July 4th, July 4th, 1831. Uh, and, you know, what are the odds, first of all, that three of the first five presidents would all die on the same day, on the same date? And of all the dates in the year, it would be July 4th. I mean, it's just, when you stop to think about that, it's just incredible. And we almost had four of the first five presidents dying on July 4th, because the fourth president, James Madison, died on a June 28th. He almost made it <laughs> to July 4th. So we almost had four of the first five presidents dying on July 4th. So anyhow, I thought, boy, that's an amazing fact. And I wrote it down, and I, I was about 15, 16 years old then, and I just started uh, I just started my desire to look for stories like that. And so I started collecting things like that when I got out of school. I started a company called uh, Century Features where we syndicated uh, interesting facts. Uh, it was a newspaper syndication column to papers in the U.S. and Canada. And then I did that for, as I say, 50-some years. And finally people said, why don't you put some of this stuff in books? And that started my uh, book series, Knowledge in a Nutshell. And then uh, I decided finally to take what I think is the best of all the stuff I have over the years and put it in this one final book, which we have today, uh, the all-time book of fascinating facts. I took what I consider the best of what we had, plus I took a couple of years to look you know, for some new stuff, too. So the result is the all-time book of fascinating facts. So anyhow, that's, that's how it all started. And that's a heck of a story. You know, the more you think about it, that three of the first five presidents all died on of all dates on July 4th. That's quite the uh, statistical. Some st- statistician out there is blowing their blowing their heads out right now, trying to figure that yeah. out. Yeah. Um. So you're you're saying this is the last book? Is that what I just heard you say? Yeah. This, I, as I say, I, I I just took the best of what I think is the best of what I have, and, and this is my uh, my final book, and uh, you know, I just wanted to put the best of everything I have in, in this one volume. Uh, and we called it the all-time book of fascinating facts. So are you still out gather? Are you still out gathering facts, though? No, this is it. And I, I tried to make it uh, timely so it wouldn't get out of date. Um, there's nothing in there really that uh, I can't foresee anything getting out of date. We did have to make one change. It's kind of an interesting story. We have a, a story in here about what's the longest-running show in America. And when I wrote the book, the answer was the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which started back in the 1880s and was still running when I started writing the book in 1916. I mean, in 2016. <laughs> and uh, wouldn't you know it? Just a few months after the book came out, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus ceased to exist. So we had a we had to change the uh, we did change the copy so it's still accurate. It still holds the record as the longest-running show in America, but in the book, originally we said it's still running, and then we made that change that it stopped uh, in 2017, but still holds the record as the longest-running show uh, in America. And there's a show about, there's a story, the story is pretty interesting about the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey. They were all kind of interesting people, and they merged into that one show, which which ran so long. Yeah, as I said, it has to be a fascinating relationship because anytime you go into a partnership with people, it, it can create tension, and you know, because somebody has their ideas and they're set in their ways, and obviously, as you look across the way, they're set in their ways too. Had to be some interesting things going on back then. For sure, no question. Yeah. So, what's what's the active like the active longest running? show. Do you know? I don't know what that would be. I have to do some research on it. That's a good question, Jim. Uh, it, it'd be kind of hard to break the record of, uh, you know, it, 
the circuit that Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus went from, as I say, eighteen the 1880s all the way to uh, the 2000s. So, you know, went all through the 1900s. And so it, it ran more than 100 years. You don't get many shows doing that, that's for sure. Too soon to mention Congress as I refrain from using Mark Twain references at this point? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a story about Mark Twain, as a matter of fact. Oh, it's good better then, because Esau always, I, oh, I just, well, what a it, life it, that guy lived, by the way. Here's the amazing story. We, the headline is, how could a person be born in Florida and Missouri? Those states are pretty far apart, so how could a person be born in Florida and Missouri? But somebody was, and of all people, it was Mark Twain. Uh, he was, there was a, there, a, a town in northeastern Missouri, the name of the town, Florida, and that's where Mark Twain was born. He was, and he went through his life telling people, hey, I was born in Florida, and I was born in Missouri, because he was born in the town of Florida, <laughs> in the state of Missouri, and that, that's a true story. He was born in in Florida, Missouri. So you can, he could safely say he was born in both Florida and Missouri. So I, I look over the notes and I see this one. Which U.S. state doesn't exist anymore? Since we're on yeah, we have at the a, moment. Ha, we, we had a, you want that story? Yeah. Okay, yeah, we had a state uh, that doesn't exist anymore. It was a state called Franklin, uh, named after Benjamin Franklin, one of our great founding fathers. Uh, and the state uh, was between what is now Tennessee and North Carolina right after the Civil War uh, that state was created, the state of Franklin and there were all kinds of political uh, and land disputes and unfortunately uh, the representatives in Congress from the state of Franklin were in the minority party at the time and the representatives from Tennessee and North Carolina were in the majority party and anyhow Tennessee and North Carolina started taking uh, the borders were not well defined in those days, and Tennessee started taking part of the land of the state of Franklin, and North Carolina took part. And after four years, and there were many battles about this, the state of Franklin ceased to exist. Tennessee took most of that land, North Carolina took some of it, and here the state of Franklin went out of business. And I was telling this story on a radio show one night, and a woman called in from Tennessee, and she always wondered there's a, a highway in eastern Tennessee called the State of Franklin Highway, and she always wondered where that name came from, and uh, she said, I'm glad you told that story, uh, because that, that road used to go into what was then called the State of Franklin. So uh, the main lesson there, I think, Jim, is here's poor Benjamin Franklin, who certainly deserved to have a state named after him and did, but doesn't anymore. The state of Franklin ceased to exist after about four years, and as I say, most of it is now in eastern Tennessee. A little bit of it is in western North Carolina, so we don't have the state of Franklin anymore. And speaking of that, you would think uh, that we would have more states named after presidents, but we have only one of our states, only one of the 50 states is named after a president, and that's, of course, the state of Washington. Uh, but no other state is named after a president. Uh, and we almost had uh, Colorado, uh, when the early settlers went there, they called the territory Jefferson after President Thomas Jefferson. But when Congress uh, took the state in, when they got statehood there, for whatever reason, uh, Congress decided to use the name Colorado instead of Jefferson. So anyhow, it leaves us with just one state named, named after a president. Let's go back to Benjamin Franklin for a minute, because the chatters brought this up way early. They wanted me to ask you about this. And I guess since we're from Pennsylvania, I'm committed to ask you about Benjamin Franklin wanting the national bird to be a turkey. Yeah, that... he was big turkey yeah. fan. <laughs> and one interesting thing we have in the book is that people say our turkey's named after the country of Turkey. And the funny thing is, the answer is no. There were no turkeys in the country of Turkey until they were brought there from America. The turkey is strictly a North American bird. Uh, it's native only of, of North America, and a, a, a turkey was never in the country of Turkey. <laughs> until we brought them there. 
Uh, and the reason they're called turkeys, it's really a mistake, and Benjamin Franklin is partially responsible for that state because the early settlers in America, there, there were a lot of turkeys, uh, in, in particularly in rural areas in those days. That's why turkey became a, a, the, the traditional food for Thanksgiving. At that time, there were so many turkeys in the country, uh, especially in our rural areas. But anyhow, the early settlers here thought there were they saw so many what we call now turkeys they thought they looked like guinea hens that are from the country of turkey and so they started calling them mistakenly they started calling those guinea hens uh turkeys after the country of turkey even though as i say uh, the birds never were in turkey uh turkeys are native only to north america and uh it's interesting i'm sure it'd be interesting to find out what people thought in the country of Turkey when they finally brought these birds over there and said, hey, here's a turkey named after you, even though you had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it has to be the uh, that weird moment when somebody presents you with something you had nothing to do with, and you're like, thanks. Right. This is great. Right. Uh, what, what is this? What's going on here? <laughs> I can just imagine. As yeah, horrified as I'd be. <laughs> the country of Turkey is, of course, so much in the news now. It's interesting and so you can think about that at Thanksgiving time, that when you're eating turkey, uh, it's not named after the country of Turkey. It was really misnamed, and no turkeys in the country of Turkey till we, till we brought them there. <laughs> of course we brought them there. That's a whole other. Oh. So, well, which, so we were talking about Benjamin Franklin, who is well known for his um, academic things. I'm surprised he was never president. But I guess timing didn't work but out for him. He, he, he was too old uh Jim, he uh, was the oldest of the founding fathers, and he died uh, very shortly after uh, the country was formed. And I think that's the one thing that, the only thing really that prevented him from being, George Washington was the obvious choice for first president, but I think if Benjamin Franklin had been younger, uh, it's possible that he would have been the obvious choice for president. And he certainly was very, very influential in the writing of the Constitution uh, and, and, you know, many other things in informing the nation which brings me to your your next point which which um which president could not read or write as a teenager and then became president and then that became president that's that's the american story right there right the american dream yeah. to if you met this kid when he was 16 17 years old and was illiterate and somebody said hey someday this guy's going to be president you know you'd say it'll never happen but it did happen uh it was andrew johnson who we talked about is the man who succeeded uh, Abraham Lincoln. He was Lincoln's vice president. Uh, when he was from a very poor family, a little town in Tennessee, Greenville, Tennessee, and he had a, his father died. He had to go to work. Uh, when he was seven, eight years old, he became an apprentice to a tailor and then worked during his childhood, which was not totally unusual in those days. Uh, some kids never went to school. Uh, George Washington is another example of that, by the way. He basically worked on his on the family's found plantation as a kid uh, and, and rarely went to school. But anyhow, Andrew Johnson never went to school, never learned to read or write. So by the time he's 16 years old, here's this teenager, illiterate, and who would ever predict he'd become president someday. But his, he had a girlfriend named Eliza McCardle, and she taught him uh, to read and write, never dreaming that while she was teaching this kid to read and write, that not only would he become president someday, but that she would become first lady of the land. But that's what happened. Uh, they got married when they were about 19 years old, and now the newly literate Andrew Johnson uh, went into politics in this little town of Greenville, Tennessee. By the time he was 25, he was elected mayor of the town, and he went into a political life I was elected uh, eventually to the legislature in Tennessee, the the state uh, House of Representatives in Tennessee. And then he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. And then uh, during, and meantime, he had married uh, uh, Eliza McCardle. Uh, meantime, fast forward to Lincoln running for a second term. The Civil War was drawing to a close, and Lincoln is vice president from the term because he wanted Lincoln was a Republican 
he wanted a Southern Democrat to be his vice president because he wanted to show that that was trying to unify the country. So he picked Andrew Johnson out of the Senate. By that time, Andrew Johnson was the U.S. senator uh, to be his vice president since Andrew Johnson was a Southern Democrat. Lincoln thought that would help unify the country, Lincoln being a Northern Republican. So he picked Andrew Johnson, and then, of course, his fate would have it. Lincoln was shot and killed shortly after his second term began, and Andrew Johnson became president. And here's here's a guy that couldn't read or write as a kid and as a teenager, and now he's president of the United States, and his wife, who taught him to read and write, is <laughs> the first lady of the land. So that's a heck of a story. Yeah, let's reflect on what you just said there. A Republican picked a Democrat for vice president. Right. Right. Wouldn't um, happen today. <laughs> as, as I say, I'm doing a prediction show for 2020 next week. That's not going to be part of my predictions. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't, don't think that will happen again. No, no. I mean, it would be a phenomenal move. I don't know if it would win, but it would just be – but anyways, that's just – Yeah, well, Lincoln did it for, as I say, good reason he was trying to – you know, unify the country after the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, it is a good reason, but I think, I mean, honestly, today, I think we're just as volatile, probably, well, maybe not as volatile, but getting close to that point. But I'll, Yeah, I don't think we'll happen. And also, we probably won't have any president who couldn't read or write as a kid, <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> well, some days probably I might think, <laughs> I was going to say some days it might not be the worst thing we've ever had, <laughs> but anyways, before I get myself in trouble. Uh, let's fast forward a few years out of the uh, the Johnson administration and go to the War of 1812 and the Star-Spangled Banner and the Betsy Ross flag. Do you have anything fun there? Well, interestingly enough, the Star-Spangled Banner uh, was written during the War of 1812, as you, as you say. Uh, it's surprising it wasn't made the national anthem until 1931. Uh, Herbert Hoover, president, then signed it, signed the bill that made it the national anthem. We didn't have a national anthem for all those years. And um, a couple of other interesting things about the Star-Spangled Banner. First of all, the words United States and the word America never appear in the Star-Spangled Banner, and that's unusual for a national anthem. If you look at all six verses, I'm sorry, all four verses of the uh, Star-Spangled Banner, the words United States and America are nowhere there. And if you went to a ball game, uh, Jim, in, let's say, 1925, a football game or baseball game, basketball game, they wouldn't say before the game, ladies and gentlemen, here's the national anthem, because we didn't have a national anthem, and they didn't play uh, anything before games in those days. Uh, uh, for one thing, there were no PA systems in the old days, but even into the 1930s, and when we did have a national anthem, they the custom was not to play the national anthem before a sports event. It didn't start to happen until World War II when, just as a patriotic gesture, they started playing the Star-Spangled Banner, originally just on special days like opening day or for the All-Star Game or World Series. But then they started playing it every day as World War II went on just to be patriotic. And it was thought that that custom would end at the end of World War II, but it didn't. It just continued. In fact, it grew. You know, Now even high school, like high school basketball games, uh, they play it. Um, so, you know, that really is a, a relatively new custom uh, to play it before all games. And when you stop to think about it, and this is kind of funny, uh, we mentioned this uh, in the book, that uh, at no other event do we play the national anthem. Uh, you go to a theater to see a play or a movie, and during World War II at those times they did play the national anthem in many cases. Uh, radio stations uh, played it at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, uh, which they don't do anymore. Uh, but sports events are really the only place where we we, we, we do play the national anthem. Uh, uh, as I say, it's kind of funny when you think about it. You go see a play or a movie, they don't they don't play the national anthem before. So there's a lot of interesting things about uh, the national anthem uh, written by Francis Scott Key. Another interesting fact about the Star Spangled Banner is he was not a songwriter, so our, our our famous national anthem was not written by a songwriter. Uh, he was a lawyer, uh, and 
the reason he wrote the words, he had been sent as a lawyer to Fort McHenry uh, to try to get a, a prisoner that the British were holding, uh, an American prisoner, freed. And he was out on the bay there during the uh, battle of Fort McHenry. And the next morning, he wasn't sure if the British had won, because the, there were bombs bursting all night. He wasn't sure if the British had won the battle of Fort McHenry or if, uh, if, if America had won it. And at dawn's early light, when it started to get light and the smoke and the fog cleared, he saw the American flag was still there. And that caused him to write the famous words, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light uh, you know, that our flag was still there? That's the reason he wrote it to begin with. As I say, he was there as a lawyer, not as, as a songwriter. So there's a lot of interesting facts about uh, the Star Spangled Banner. So let's go back to baseball for a minute. When did we start doing the seventh inning stretch? Well, there's a couple theories on that. The most prevalent one is that uh, the first president to attend a game was uh, William Howard Taft. He was a big baseball fan, and he went to a game in uh, Washington. Uh, oddly enough, Washington, again, has a franchise. <laughs> but they, they the, the old Washington senators were in the American League uh, back at, in those days. And uh, this is in the late 19... 19- 1909, I think it was. He, he was president from 1909 to 1913, William Howard Taft. Anyhow, he, he went to a ball game. Throughout the first pitch, he started the custom of uh, famous people throwing out the first pitch. But uh, he had to get back to the White House uh, for whatever reason when the last of the seventh was coming around. So he was sitting in a box seat in the front row uh, behind the dugout. And he got up to leave uh, in the middle of the seventh inning. And out of respect, as Taft got up to leave and started to walk out, people in the stands got up to leave. I uh, mean, got up to stretch or got just got up out of their seats uh, to honor President Taft. And as it turned out, Washington, which was behind at that time, the Washington Senator team, they had a big rally in the last of the seventh and won the game. And the custom started that might be a good luck charm to stand up in the middle of the seventh. That's one theory as to where it came from. And then they started doing that in Washington all the time, standing up in the middle of the seventh inning for a seventh inning stretch. Another theory is that at, uh, I think it was at Fordham, which is a Catholic school, one of the uh, priests there uh, thought his uh, pupils were not paying attention to the game and he had them stand up uh, in the middle of the seventh inning to stretch uh, just as a way to get them <laughs> starting to pay attention again. And again, they had a big rally in the last of the seventh, and that's another theory that that's where that tradition came from. Uh, that's another reason that tradition came uh, to give us a seventh inning stretch, which, of course, which story is true, or maybe parts of both stories are true. I, I tend to believe the one with President Taft, because we know that did happen. We know he was the first uh, president to attend a Major League Baseball game and to throw out the first pitch. And, and you know, his leaving was a big event there, and people did get up, and they did have the rally. That, that's all been checked, and that's true. So that's probably where the seventh inning stretch came from. Well, it sounds good. Makes a good story. Better story yeah. than the other one, for sure. <laughs> if I was gonna, if I was gonna write the stories on eh, right. what I did, what I want to hear, I think the the, the President Taft story is much better. Um, now I want to dig for you. I mean, I know you're of an age. I don't know if you did or not. Did you go to Forbes Field at all oh, as a child? In fact, T- I was take, not sure there. Would you believe? I was gonna say, take take me back there. Tell me. I mean, um, goodness. At the All Star Game in Pittsburgh, a few years well. 13 years ago. Oh, good God. I had the pleasure of sitting beside a guy. Well, it wasn't his seat, but he came down and sat beside me for some reason. And um, he started telling me stories about Forbes Field and Bobby. And, and Bobby is Roberto Comeni. About how he'd just roam the neighborhood and hang out. And, you know, and I was just sitting there fascinated. Fascinated by these stories he was telling me from his childhood. So I'm assuming you probably have some other interesting stories about that. that well, that it was. It was- it was a great ballpark, and it was in a neighborhood area. Um, it, it's 
where the University of Pittsburgh basically is. Uh, and by the way, the part of the fence is still there, uh, even though the park was torn down years ago. But where Mazeroski hit the home run to win the 1960 World Series, the seventh game of the 1960 World Series, they still have part of that wall is still there. It's on the University of Pittsburgh campus now. But the wall is there, and there's a plaque which says, you know, this is the wall over which Mazeroski hit the home run to win the 1960 World Series over the New York Yankees. And it was on October 13th, by the way, 1960, that seventh game of the World Series. Uh, and every year now, on the October 13th, they have a ceremony there. And Mazeroski, a few times, he's still living. Uh, and there's a group of people that they they have a tape of the broadcast of the game, so they they play the broadcast of the, at seventh game of the World Series and one of the most exciting games in history, uh, where the score was tied going in the last of the ninth, seventh game, and Mazeroski hit a home run over the left field wall, and, uh, so they have a recording of that, and they celebrate that every uh, every October thirteenth. It was a great ballpark. Um, beautiful ballpark beyond the outfield is a park a Shenley Park in, in Pittsburgh so you had trees growing out there if you were sitting you know, looking out over the fence um, and had the old fashioned bleachers there and, um, one other interesting fact about Forbes Field, Babe Ruth hit his last three home runs in Major League Baseball at Forbes Field and not only that, he he was with the Boston Braves at that time. He's in the National League after leaving the New York Yankees. The first home run he hit went in the lower deck of the right field stands. The second home run he hit went into the upper deck of the right field stands. And the third home run he hit that day went over the roof. And he became the first player ever to hit a home run over the roof in right field stands of Forbes Field. And those were the last three home runs he ever hit, and of course he held the record for many years uh, for the most home runs. Just a so the park had lots of memories. <laughs> yeah, as I say, just a fascinating place, and then they moved into that tire fire, I mean Free River Stadium. <laughs> yeah, and that, those stadiums, a lot of teams did that. didn't work out too well where they used them for both football and baseball. You really need a separate ballpark for baseball, I think, and uh, just because of the uniqueness of that sport as opposed to football. And, you know, so most cities now have a separate stadium for baseball and a separate one for football. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked out that way. I'm much, mm -hmm. much happier sure. being in either venue now than I was being at Fairview stadium. But that's a whole bunch of other sports stories for another time. Um, so now that you've kind of, Put a nail on these books. What, what are you going to? What, what are you? What are you looking forward to doing now? Well, no, that's uh, that's about it. I just want to have this book become. Uh, some people said it's the best trivia book of all time. I don't know about that, but I appreciate that comment. Um, and you can have a lot of fun with it. Uh, families like it. It's good for kids and and adults. Um, if I can read you what uh, I, I've worked for CBS and the, my old boss at CBS, Constance Lloyd, who was a news director there. Uh, she gave us this quote, if, if you don't mind. If, no, go ahead, but, yes. Uh, this is on the cover of the book. It says, the information here is fabulous and so appealing because of the I bet you didn't know spirit in all of us who uh, like to stump our friends and savor the interesting information for ourselves. So, I, I you know, I, I I hope that is what the book is. Uh, uh, you can you can have. Uh, we got a letter the other day from a woman who said she was on a long automobile trip with her husband, and uh, they passed the hours by her asking him all these questions from the book. And then uh, each story has a the headline is a question, and then we have the story. It's not just a one word, you know, one sentence answer. It's a little story about each each one. Uh, so you can use it as a quiz book and, and uh, uh, you know, just just have some fun with it and, and uh, we hope learn some things, too. And uh, uh, 
Well, I think it, it's, it, it, it's the kind of the crux of all good conversation. Now, if you, you get somebody with some random fact, there's a genuine conversation that follows. Yeah, we we tried to make it so it's we have all kinds of uh, we have sports, we have presidential facts, we have geography, we have a lot of food facts. Uh, so you know. Like uh, hamburgers, why, why in the world do we call them hamburgers? Do you ever stop to think there's no ham in hamburgers? So why in the world do we call them hamburgers? <laughs> Can I confuse some poor clerk at McDonald's with that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is that we had a lot of German immigrants came to the United States in the late 1800s, and the people from Hamburg, Germany, the town of Hamburg, Germany, brought with them their custom of serving ground meat, which was unusual in those days. So people here started calling ground meat hamburgers after the city of Hamburg, Germany. So the name comes from the fact, not that there's any ham in hamburgers, but from the city of origin, Hamburg, Germany. So anyhow, the next time you're having a hamburger with a friend, you can say, hey, there ain't no ham here. Why do we call them hamburgers? And you got the answer there. And that's very similar, by the way, Jim, to Frankfurters got their name from Frankfurt, Germany, where they were made. And Wieners, that name comes from Vienna, the German pronunciation for Vienna is Wien. They spell it W-E-I-N and pronounce it Wien. And Wien, and that's where Wieners came from. But I like the one on hamburgers. And then uh, we have a lot of things like why police officers are called cops. Uh, so, so, you know, it's a good variety of questions in the book. And if I may say, uh, your listeners can go to our website, knowledgeinanutshell.com. Uh, you can see the book there and order it if you like. Uh, there's a discount. Uh, some people buy a bunch of them to give as Christmas gifts or birthday gifts. There's a little discount if you take more than one. Uh, the price of the book, by the way, is 19.95, and that includes the shipping and handling. Uh, so the name of the website is knowledgeinanutshell.com. You'll see the book there and read about it, and there's an order form. Uh, the name of the book is, the website's knowledgeinanutshell.com. The name of the book is The All-Time Book of Fascinating Facts. It's also on Amazon if you prefer to do that, or we have an 800 number, too, if you want to do it that way, 1-800-NUTSHELL. So we invite <laughs> folks to sample the book. All right. Dr. Knowledge, it has been fun, and I can hear the radio in you, and it makes me excited. It makes me happy. Well, nothing like radio, right, Jim? Yeah. So thank, thank you. We'll th- I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll talk again, though. Well, I hope you know, this so. might be, this might be the last book, but we're, I'm not done with you yet. Well, no, we have a lot more to talk about. That's for sure. <laughs> have a good well, evening, Jim. Thank have you good. so much. And that's Doctor Knowledge there, hanging out with us on the Mauer Report. What a great guest! That hour, I love this hour. I was talking about that earlier. What a great guest. Okay, before I get to my iTunes review, which I'm encouraging people to go over and read, or you can come to Mauer.com/slash/reviews and leave one there if you're not an iTunes person. I want to mention the duck pond people that I've seen. I want to give a quick shout-out to Cat of Paranormal Heart. She is out on an investigation night, so good luck and uh, stay safe out there. i seen Brian Bowden. i seen Roy hanging out for a little bit. I see Germantown Runner. I see Walks at Night. I see WR250. Anybody that I may have missed during the course of the show, I am sorry, but next time make a bigger impression. Okay. So another, I promised one of the other bad reviews. So here we go. I, like the previous person, have heard many paranormal podcasts. And this one has to be the absolute worst. There are a ton of podcasts out there, and there's a small handful of really good paranormal ones. Right? Okay. Typically, I listen to the Paranormal Podcast with Jim Harold. Good friend of mine, by the way. I did his show... A while ago, if if I think it's part of his membership program, but uh, I know a guy who can get you a link to actually listen to it if you want to hear me with Jim Harold. Um, Jim's Jim's po- podcast is far more polished, but this Far Side one isn't bad at all. Far Side isn't making shows anymore, much better than this Mallard Report. Having said all that, to say this, I love it. I was talking to I was talking. Uh, you'll hear this podcast coming out. In a couple months, uh, amazingly, this guy is booked out a couple months, and he wanted to still talk to me. Phenomenal! You'll hear more about my paranormal podcast journey. I can't wait to share that with you all. Like I said, probably around Christmas, 
by the sounds of it, if not the first of the new year. So, like I said, Mallard.com slash reviews, iTunes reviews, share, like, review, all this fun stuff, all this fun stuff going on. Oh, I should almost need to mention this. We're almost out of time. We're almost out of time, and I have not said this yet. Happy Halloween, everybody. Stay safe. Keep the kids out of, you know, out of, the, out of traffic. Check the candy, because there's a lot of horrible people in the world. But seriously, have a good time with it. That's mallard.com. See you next week. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.